You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Yeah, and I think it's also important to remember that there are a lot of things that, a lot of skills that can't be measured by a standardized test, and those skills are um, really important. And, you know, if we put too much pressure and too much um, stock in the standardized tests, I think kids start to hear those messages that they have to do well on this kind of exam to be worth something, and that simply is not the case. And I don't think a lot of teachers think that. They need to be prepared for, for a job or for a career, and there is a, a great need for those STEM skills in, in industry. Um, we're always looking for engineers now, and there's a lot of talk around just the, uh, the scarceness of engineering resources in, in the U.S. in general. I think schools recognize that they needed to help prepare and fill that, that void. This is Dr. Lisa Belio, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 256, Engaging in Education, airing for the first time on Sunday, August 14, 2016. How do we engage children so that they are motivated to learn? For each child, this answer is different. Today's guests have been participating in the education of Maine children both in and out of the classroom. Talia Edlin was named Maine Teacher of the Year in 2016. Jim Eichmann and Keith Borkowski are community members who work with students in the FIRST LEGO Robotics and Odyssey of the Mind programs. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. My next guest is one of our 50 Mainers, who we feature every year in Maine Magazine. This is Talia Edlund. She is a former third grade teacher at the Pond Cove Elementary School in Cape Elizabeth, who was named 2016 Maine Teacher of the Year. This year, she will be teaching fifth grade at Cape Elizabeth Middle School. She lives in Cape Elizabeth with her husband and two sons. It's really great to see you today. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. So we're interviewing you in the summer, which is probably one of the rare times you're actually able to be out in the middle of the day doing things. Yes, it feels really nice to be able to just move around and go where I want to go, get a coffee. Well, I often think about that with teaching. It's a, a very intense, I mean, it's intense, I think, throughout the year, but particularly when you're actually with students. It is. It's a really consuming job. Um, I'm lucky because I love it and I'm very passionate about it, but it certainly is very consuming. And there are, day, there are days that I go in about 7 a.m. and am there until about 5.30 or 6. And it's very energy intense. It is. It takes a lot of energy. I'm moving on my feet all day. Uh, sometimes I find myself surprised if I'm sitting down. When I talk to my mother, who has been teaching for, I don't know, a few decades now, and um, she... She also has the long hours, especially during the winter time, and 
she still seems to be continually energized. In the summer, she's always studying new things to teach and how to teach and how to reach her um, how to reach your students. I'm guessing you're probably the same way. Definitely. I think that one of the great things about teaching is that it offers the opportunity to continually be creative and to seek out um, new things to learn. And I think just that um, drive and ability to be curious all the time is what really keeps me energized. And I think the sa- it does the same for my colleagues. So tell me about your background. Where are you from? And why did you decide that teaching was what you wanted to do? So I'm originally from Chicago, and in high school, I actually read a book called Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozel, and um, it's kind of a narrative of a few, of a few kids uh, that grow up in inner-city Chicago, so just maybe 15, 20 miles away from where I grew up, and I was, I've always been someone that's been very interested in differences and social inequalities and social justice, and so the book really resonated with me. Um, I ended up... Uh, co-founding with an English teacher of mine in high school, uh, an organiza- a chapter of the organization Future Educators of America. And what we um, did was go on some field trips and visit other schools. And at that time, I really didn't know I wanted to be a teacher. But one of the trips we went on was to a school that served uh, kids that lived in the DuSable housing projects. I don't think those projects are there anymore. But uh, the school was so vastly different from uh, mine on many levels. And so, when I went there, I really thought, my gosh, um, schools look so different depending on where you live. And that kind of launched me into kind of a pathway of figuring out how I could make an impact um, and how I could make um, some changes um, for systems like education. Um, In college, I volunteered uh, with an organization that worked with uh, prisoners and prisoner uh, rights. And through that, I ended up Through that, I ended up volunteering at a juvenile detention facility, and I facilitated uh, theater and writing workshops there. And just the individuals, the young men and individuals that I worked with taught me so much about um, resiliency and courage. Also, um, really had me thinking a lot about, again, where the systems were schools and what systems failed them along the way. And so I think really that's kind of why I became a teacher. What are some of the inequalities that you, well, that you read about and then you eventually witnessed yourself that you hope to make a difference with as a teacher? Well, I think that um, what I noticed even when I was 18 in high school was just the culture and the climate of the schools. You know, I walked into that school and there was just high level security and um just kind of everyone seemed on edge. Uh, I remember walking into sitting in the classroom and the students were shocked um, because the other student and I that were sitting observing were both white and we were the only white people in the school, um, which is truly uh, a terrible, a terrible thing um, that schools like that still exist. So. That, that was one thing. And then the students in the classroom were waiting for a teacher, so their teacher was not there. They were waiting for yet another substitute teacher. And there was just a lot of confusion, I think. And I remember that. Um, and then I did teach in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy for three years, and it was very similar, you know, 10, 15 years later. I mean, some of the same inequalities existed. Um, and my students were incredible, but the things that they were facing in their lives were just... Um, 
really difficult. I mean, students that were living in shelters, students who had faced different kinds of trauma, students who didn't have any kind of acute trauma in their lives, but they just dealt with the day-to-day stresses of um, being poor and not sure where they were going to sleep that night. Um, It made things really difficult in the classroom at times. When I... When I hear you talking, I think about my own situation as a doctor and how I'm trying to help people get to the next level of health, but sometimes there are things that they are dealing with that are so elemental mm-hmm. that I I have not that much control over, you know, if they're maybe they don't have enough food to eat or they've lost their job or they are homeless. And that that's a it's tough to be in that place, whether you're a teacher or a doctor or another sort of professional who's trying to be a part of this situation. How did you work with that? Um, I think really the first and foremost um, avenue towards addressing those kinds of challenges really is building relationships. I think there's a lot of research that shows that building relationships is really what makes the strongest impact and having these long-term relationships um, with students uh, certainly plays a part in changing their narrative or can play a part in changing their narrative. So I think that that really is the first place. And I think then um, the more you learn and the more research and well-read you are on um, different strategies and approaches to helping helping kids and helping um, communities um, kind of overcome some of those challenges, the better, uh, the, the more capable you're going to be and the more equipped you're going to be to uh, deal with those things. So really, at the end of the day, though, it comes down to um, relationships. If you're from Chicago mm-hmm. and you taught in New York City, here you're in Maine. <laughs> how, how did that play out? So... Um, you know, after college, I kind of took a roundabout course to teaching. I lived in Hawaii for a little bit, and then I led trail crews in New Hampshire, but always kind of my heart was being pulled towards the classroom. And so after living and teaching in New York City for a while, my husband uh, and I decided to travel for a bit. And when we came back, we just wanted to find a community where uh, we could um, maybe start a family and kind of feel like things were a little bit more manageable than they were in New York City. And we just liked what Portland had to offer. We liked uh, the diversity that Portland had. We liked just the community feel that Portland had. We had some friends who lived here and encouraged us to move here. And so that's where we ended up, and we just fell in love and stayed. Your husband is also a teacher. He is. Did that help bring you together in some way? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, something that I always um, admired in my husband before we were married was just his passion for education. And so a lot of our early conversations were about really um, the impacts of teaching and classroom practices. And so I think through that, we ended up finding kind of some common ground that we still have. You live in Cape Elizabeth, and you teach in Cape Elizabeth. Yes. Um, so your your boys are how old? So I have a five-year-old about to start kindergarten and an eight-year-old that's about to start second grade. So what has that been like for you to teach within the system that your children are, are part of? You know, I was nervous about it at first, but as it turns out, it's been really great because, I mean, I love the school that I teach at. I love the school that they Um, that they go to and the teachers just care so much for them and so every day my son who's in second grade now he'll come home and he has some story about some individual just making him feel like a million dollars and I mean that's priceless 
It is funny as you're saying that. I think about my own children and more of the interactions that they describe are about their friends or about how someone made them feel. Mm-hmm. They're older now, but even so, they're not always coming home saying, well, guess what we learned about World War II Germany? Yeah. <laughs> it's not as much about the ideas sometimes as it is about kind of the milieu, I think. Yeah. I heard someone say once that people tend to, re- they don't always remember what you say, but they almost always remember how you make them feel. And I think that's really true. And I've seen that with my kids. So you are moving up. You've taught second grade and third grade, yes. at least in Cape Elizabeth, and you're moving up to fifth grade. As your son is getting older, as he's now he's going into second grade, do you feel like you're just continuing to move up the track a little <laughs> ahead of him? There are times where I feel like what I've been doing all day during the school hours mirrors what's happening at home. And so moving on to older kids that are older than my son, has, I think will be a little bit of a break from that. So that's nice. Uh, Tell me what, as a third grade teacher, I'm just, what, what does your day actually look like? What are you doing with the kids and how does that, how does that interaction play out? So, you know, the kids start rolling in at about eight o'clock in the morning and some of them have breakfast and some of them don't. And they, in third grade at my school, they go right to an allied art. So they either go to art, music, gym, but then when they come back to the classroom, like we'll have a class meeting and then really it's, um, as the year progresses, it really becomes kind of what we do during the day becomes driven by what they um, are doing and how they interact with one another. So there's a lot of group work, a lot of building, a lot of, um, kind of creating in my classroom. And it's pretty noisy in there. There's a lot of group work. And so that's something that I've kind of had to let go of a little bit because, you know, it's different. When I first started teaching, I thought I was doing well if my kids and my students were sitting very quietly and being very productive with their pencils and their paper. And now I think that that, for me, is a sign that, thing, that a lot of learning is not happening. Well, my mom, when my kids were growing up, she would always say that the quiet children were the ones that she worried about. The noisy ones she didn't worry quite so much about. <laughs> so that actually makes me feel a little bit better that you're talking about sort of the noise levels in the classroom and how that's kind of a... that's a germination of creativity and learning yeah do you think that um well I don't know you how long have you been teaching now uh 16 years now so have you noticed a shift with the learning results and all of the standardized testing that's taking place from a pretty early age yeah I think that there's been a lot of pendulum swings back and forth in terms of testing uh when I first came to Maine we had I walked into a system of local assessments. So what those were were curriculum-based assessments that grade levels would come up with on their own. And it was a bit unwieldy and confusing. I remember one of the assessments that I needed to give to my second graders had to do with melting chocolate bars. And so we would give each student a a piece of chocolate bar, and then we would all run out to the parking lot and put it on the (laughs) roof of or the inside dashboard of a car, and then come back later in the day to see if it had melted or not. And then the students had to write down their observations, which to me seemed somewhat silly. (laughs) And so eventually we got rid of those assessments and moved on to something a lot more standardized. And um, I think we're still trying to find kind of a happy ground for where assessments really uh, measure learning and also guide instruction. 
Well, not to mention the fact that how many cars would you need to actually have <laughs> dashboards full of chocolate? <laughs> it was pretty ridiculous. We were using, I think, two or three cars, and teachers would leave their cars unlocked, and it, it was um, short-lived. Well, that sounds strange, but I, I, <laughs> I don't want to judge because you do weird things in the medical <laughs> profession, too. But there is an interesting question, and that is, what is it that we actually hope for a second grader to know, and how do we figure out whether they know that or not, and why is it important? I mean, and I don't know who even comes up with these things. Yeah, I think right now what we have, the system that we have, the Common Core, is a really good guiding map for where we want kids to get to and what kinds of thinking skills and depth of knowledge we want them to have. But I think it's important that we remember to honor that learning is a process and all kids are going to learn at different paces. Someone gave me the example a, a few weeks ago of when kids learn how to walk. There is an exact set date and time where a child learns how to walk. And I think the same thing happens with reading, math, and writing. I think it really is a process. And I think um, really an important part of that process is to make sure that students are highly engaged and feel ownership over their learning and, and frankly feel excited about their learning. Well, I want to go on record as saying I ha I, I'm not trying to suggest that people who create standardized tests are um, doing silly things. I mean, I think that it is important to be able to have some ideas to whether what you're doing actually is having an impact on the kids. But I think you're right, especially in the younger grades. It seems like there's such a broad variation mm -hmm. in what we can expect that kids will be able to do. Yeah, and I think it's also important to remember that there are a lot of things that, a lot of skills that can't be measured by a standardized test and those skills are um, really important and you know if we put too much pressure and too much um, stock in the standardized tests I think kids start to hear those messages that they have to do well on this kind of exam to be worth something and that simply is not the case and I don't think a lot of teachers think that. Well, I think about some of the more successful people that I've ever worked with, and they have a very high level of social and emotional awareness and um, intellect. Mm -hmm. And how do we measure that? How mm -hmm. do you measure someone's social skills effectively? And if we were to measure that, then how do we give that sort of feedback to a second grader? Yeah, I think that just giving them opportunities to... Uh, use those strengths to be social, to communicate in the way that works best for them, and to celebrate that with them as often as possible gives them the kind of feedback that I think they deserve. You're excited to go into the fifth grade next year. I am. And one of the things that you like is that the literature is um, just a different level. Yes. Tell me about that. Tell me about the, the fifth grade years and what it is that is so appealing to you. So I think that um, what's neat about third graders where I've been for the, who I've been with for the past few years is that they're just starting to develop those critical thinking skills where they can really analyze the situation and um, form their own theories and judgments about them. But I think you have to be very mindful about the choices and content that you have third graders read or that you offer third graders because I think that their understanding of the world is not as layered or complex as you know a fourth or fifth grader so I don't know I've always been someone who loves books and loves literature and when I think about uh, the books that I want my students to read and truly be able to have good conversations about and um, lots of uh, theories and ideas about 
I like the idea of some of the fifth the, the things that fifth graders are able to read about, uh, things like kids in the foster care system or um, love and loss. Those are things that are hard for third graders to really grasp um, with a level of sophistication that I think fifth graders can. What are some of your favorite books from that era? Um, well, I love Talk Everlasting, of course, uh, because of Win dixie I'm reading a book right now called Counting by Sevens, which is fairly new, and it's just fabulous about kind of this, this little girl who is gifted, uh, but because of that is very misunderstood, and she also loses her family, and she's adopted, and so there's all kinds of um, complexities in her life that reflect reality, and I'm really enjoying that. It's true as you're as you're talking. I'm thinking about Tuck Everlasting, which I read a few years ago, and I'm thinking about the a lot of the books that I read right in that time frame. And there was a lot. There was so it was almost as if your world was opening up, and it was mostly through story. Yes. So there's an excitement to that. Yeah, I think stories have this way of connecting us and reflecting our realities, but also have this way of. Um, opening our minds to what other people go through um, and what other, what other people's lives might be like. And I think that's really important. I think that is a way to really build empathy in kids and help kids become, I think, conscientious citizens. You were named the Teacher of the Year I for was. Maine in 2016. Yes. What are the qualifications for that? And why do you think that they afforded you this honor? Well, I think that, you know, certainly there are many incredible teachers at my school and throughout the state, and I think that I just happen to have the the strengths um, and relationships with the right group of students at the right time, and so it ended up being kind of a long, almost a year-long process of... um, essay writing and interviews and discussions and getting to meet other people until I was finally named. But I think that um, the honor has just afforded me a, a new perspective, a broader perspective on what's going on in our educational landscape, as well as uh, what's going on nationally with teachers. What have you learned? <laughs> so I've learned that teachers across the country face the same challenges. I've learned a lot about rural poverty and um, the realities of living and growing up in a rural school because my experience has always been um, teaching and living in a more urban setting. And I've also learned that we do a really good job for our students, for the most part, in in our country. And I think our biggest issue truly is poverty. Our biggest hurdle truly is addressing um, the challenges of poverty. And that's true nationwide. I live in Yarmouth, and I know in Yarmouth not everybody is exceedingly wealthy. Mm -hmm. We definitely have a broad range of people. And I think sometimes that's hard for people um, who maybe fall on the lower end of the income spectrum mm-hmm. because Yarmouth, like Cape Elizabeth, is mm-hmm. it, there is there is more. Yeah. There is more available to some, but not to all. Yeah. Do you see that that impacts the children in your classroom? I do. I think the, the two communities are very similar, and I think... Um, it can be really difficult, especially as they get older and more aware of differences um, between you know, their lifestyles. I think that can be really hard for some kids. And I think that it can be really hard to make sure that we have the right services that catch uh, the needs, that capture the needs 
uh, of kids that might not have um, as fortunate of a situation. My observation of Maine, having lived here many years, having nine younger brothers and sisters who went through Maine schools, having three kids of my own going through Maine schools, and having my, a mother who's a teacher, as well as cousins and uncles and aunts, is that we do a really nice job with our educational system. Maybe we're not perfect, but we're pretty good. And I think we're really, we really want to be good. We really want our children to learn. Has that been your observation? Absolutely. I think that there was such a difference when I came to Maine in terms of the culture and the attitudes that teachers had towards students. I think there's just a level of respect for students and a level of caring for students um, that for me was very impressive. You know, that wasn't my that wasn't my experience in New York City. The other piece that I think we do a really good job with is having small class sizes so that there really are opportunities for individualized attention and meeting kids' needs um, on a one-to-one basis. So that's been really impressive. And I think we also have some pretty cutting-edge ideas here. We have a strong network of very innovative teachers across the state, uh, teachers who are really committing to committing to integrating technology and using technology not just for kind of skill and drill experiences, but really using technology to launch kids into 21st century learning. There's a lot of movement towards connecting classrooms across the state and across the country and even globally. And I think we have a very strong teacher leadership movement here as well. So a lot of teachers that are understanding that their voices matter and that they can speak to legislators and that they can speak on behalf of their students and their profession. And I think that uh, that's something that is fairly unique in Maine because we do have that small town feeling. So people feel like they can know each other and talk to each other here. Talia, it's been a pleasure to have you. you in today. And I hope that people will take the time to read about you in Maine Magazine as uh, one of our 50 Mainers and um, maybe get to, I don't know, stop in and say hello when you're back in the classroom again in the fall. We've been speaking with Talia Edlund, who is the 2016 Maine Teacher of the Year. And I appreciate your coming in and taking the time to talk about this very important subject with me. Yeah, thank you so much. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Ruth Hamill, Joanne Perrin, Alan Bunker, and Jean Jack. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormain.com. Our next guests are interesting in that they are not teachers, but that they work closely with the school systems um, in the areas of first Lego Robotics and also Odyssey of the Mind. 
Jim Eichmann is the engineering manager at the Corning Incorporated Life Sciences plant in Kennebunk. He started working for Corning in 1999 after earning his BA in physics and PhD in optical sciences. Since moving to Maine in 2009, Jim has been involved with science and technology in the community. In particular, he has enjoyed the opportunity to both increase interest among middle school students in STEM, or science, technology, engineering, and math, and help build their skills through programs such as First Lego Robotics. Jim and his wife, Liz, live with their two sons in Kennebunk. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. We also have with us Keith Borkowski, who is the plant controller at the Corning Incorporated Life Sciences plant in Kennebunk. He joined Corning in 2012. Keith has been involved with Odyssey of the Mind for nine years in the town of Wells. His Odyssey of the Mind involvement started as a parent. He has been coaching for the past seven years and the coordinator at the elementary school for the past five. To Keith, Odyssey of the Mind is a great way for kids to learn and display their STEAM skills, or science, technology, engineering, arts, and math skills. Keith and his wife, Margaret, live with their two daughters and Wells. And thank you for coming in. Thank you. So one of you is interested in STEM and one's in STEAM. I'm, I, I'm just fascinated. So is there, are we now calling all things STEM, STEAM? Or is there still like a kind of a divergence of thought? Uh, so I, I think it's more of an evolution uh, from STEM to STEAM. Uh, there's, uh, it started as STEM and uh, there was a lot of interest in, in the math and the sciences. Um, but then as, as people got interested in programs like uh, robotics and Odyssey of the Mind, um, they saw that there was this creative element uh, to things as well, not just the technical side of things. And that's where the A got, got added in. So you do hear STEAM uh, coming in a lot more now. Um, you still hear STEM, but STEAM coming in a lot more now too. So what I wonder is, so what's left out? If you now have STEAM, is it just like reading and language arts or history or liberal arts? Maybe this isn't even a question that you guys can answer. I don't know. Yeah, STEM actually does cover those topics also. Uh, because you need to be able to read the problems, understand them, and be able to take that and put it into your solution. Well, I won't ask you to kind of understand the educational mind, because I know that's not exactly the what you do. You both actually work for Corning Incorporated Life Sciences. So explain to me what that is. Uh, so we're a division of Corning Incorporated, um, and uh, our division is focused on um, making products that help the uh, the life sciences or medical or pharmaceutical industries. Uh, so a lot of our products are used um, at universities uh, to do research um, and they're also used to produce a lot of uh, things like vaccines and medicines. So while we don't, while we don't make those types of uh, vaccines or medicines, we make products that help companies make them. Keith, what does a plant controller do? So I'm responsible for the financial reporting of the plant, also making sure that we follow all the legal aspects of finance and accounting. And I'm interested, Jim, because you pointed out that it's not a BS or a Bachelor's of Science in Physics. You actually have a Bachelor of Arts. Is that unusual? Uh, yes, it, most, most physics undergraduate degrees are a, are a science degree. I attended a, a liberal arts college and there was a lot of emphasis on not just your major, but making sure that you got a broad exposure uh, to a lot of different areas, um, science, arts, humanity. So they weren't calling it STEAM back then, but it, it's more of a STEAM type of approach. Yeah. 
And what does it mean to have a PhD in optical sciences? Uh, so that was uh, my furthering my education, uh, trying to narrow down and focus. After having this broad exposure, um, I was really interested in how can I apply it. And so that's where I looked uh, to, uh, to further get, get a further degree. Um, and optics was just an area that was very interesting to me. And, and so that's what I pursued. So. Keith, as the plant controller, what type of educational background do you have? Yeah, I have a BS in accounting. And I've also passed the CPA exam. So it's interesting. You kind of you guys cover all of the different fields. We've got finances and business, and we've we've got the BA, the liberal arts. It seems like it seems like Corning is really needing to bring in a lot of different pieces to do the work that they do. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, cross-functional efforts. Keith and I, even though I'm in engineering and he's in finance, uh, we work quite a bit together. Um, both collaboratively and trying to help each other understand what's going on um, in the different functions in our in our plant. I guess the reason I'm so interested in this is because uh, we talk a lot about STEM and STEAM and eventually kids get out of the educational system and they need to have jobs. So wondering you know how each of you got to the place where you now are employed in essentially a science related field. Uh, well, so for me, I was always interested in science or, or the way things worked, um, you know, from getting a microscope when I was little to, to just reading books about how things worked and things like that. So uh, I knew I wanted to somehow end up in sciences. And uh, after getting my, my PhD, I knew I wanted to be in an applied science or engineering. And uh, Corning was a great fit uh, for that, that career interest for me. So. And Keith, how about you? Is there something about working within the scientific field, even though what you do is financial? Yeah, for the life sciences industry, it's really interesting to me to see what the products can do now and all the changes and evolution that's going on in the industry. And currently, my daughter is at Brown University, and she's getting firsthand knowledge of all the changes, and she's right at that forefront of what's going on. So it was great for me to get into the life sciences industry to to see what was going into the industry at this point in time. Both of you are doing things that I think are somewhat new to the educational scene, at least in Maine. I believe Odyssey of the Mind has been around longer than the uh, first Lego robotics program. Mm -hmm. But this type of um, in-the-school in the effort to encourage kids to do things with science, technology, um, arts, uh, engineering, and math. This is somewhat new within the last few decades, I would say. Why, why do we care? Why do we want to get kids doing things that are not just classroom oriented to help get them interested? I, I think there's several reasons. So um, one is, I, I think, uh, as you said, they need to be prepared for, for a job or for a career. And there is a, a great need for those STEM skills in, in industry. Um, we're always looking for engineers now, and there's a lot of talk around just the, uh, the scarceness of engineering resources in, in the U.S. in general. I think schools recognize that they needed to help prepare and fill that, that void. Um, and, and so the programs like the Robotics or, or Odyssey of the Mind really help develop those kind of practical skills outside of just the, the classroom teaching. So. Keith, tell me about Odyssey of the Mind. What does that actually involve? Yeah, Odyssey of the Mind is a creative program where the kids are responsible for 
understanding the problems that they will solve and coming up with their own solutions 100%. There's no interaction with the parents. We can teach them skills like how to sew or how to use a drill, but they have to come up with all of the um, aspects themselves. So they actually have to take the problem. There's five different types of problems. They'll take one problem and that'll be what they'll work on for the full year. And that's their long-term problem. Uh, this year, my team is working on the vehicle problem. So they had to build a vehicle that can hold two kids, be propelled without cycling, so no pedaling by a human, and travel a course and pick up several different adapted items to be adapted. Um, what's great for me is that it starts with the kids have to do it all themselves. So I also coach soccer. At that point in time, you're telling the kids what to do. In this, the kids have to actually go out and do the program themselves. And how about you? What what about the first Lego Robotics program? Uh, first, it has very similar kind of core values to Odyssey of the Mind in the respect of that the kids do should be doing the work. Um, they they come up with the solutions to the problems. Uh, the coaches are there to help or or teach basic skills but it's really reliant on the kids to define the problem and come up with some creative solution to it. Um, in the case of FIRST, the, the problem is a little bit more defined in, in terms of there's one problem, a robotic competition or a, a robotic challenge that all of the teams work on, the same problem. Um, the, the creativity, the variety of solutions is, is pretty amazing when you see how one team solves it compared to another team. Um, but it, it's always the, the kids working to, to come and figure out how to solve the problem. Heidi Kern is our art director for Maine Home Design, and from what I understand, you brought her daughter along with an entire team of kids to St. Louis because you are, for the second time in a row, your team was the state champions in the first Lego robotics competition. That's kind of big deal there. Yeah, it was. It was a it was a very big deal and a very exciting trip. Uh, the, we had uh, ten kids that uh, this was their second year together on a team, which is also unusual, um, and their second year winning the state championship, uh, which I, I think is unusual too. Um, the The trip uh, was to the World Festival in in St. Louis. Um, the first organization which does first Lego Robotics and a couple of other programs for high school and elementary students has this world festival each year. Uh, it's the largest convention in St. Louis, uh, 40,000 people and uh, close to a thousand different teams of, of kids there. So the, the kids had a great time and uh, it was very exciting to, to get to see all the other teams from 40 different countries around the world. And these kids that you brought were seventh and eighth grade. Yes, yep. They were the uh, age group for for Lego Robotics runs from eight to fourteen. So um, this was their last year of eligibility. They were all in the thirteen to fourteen years. So. And how about Odyssey of the Mind? What what are the what's the age breakdown on that? So the bracket that we're in this year is Division Two, and it's sixth through eighth graders. Uh, the seven kids on my team are all in sixth grade. So. As a first-year Division II team, they ended up winning uh, the state title. And is there some sort of a national festival or competition that you are going to as well? Yes, um, I'll be going. Out, we'll be going out um, May 24th through the 29th to Iowa State University, where we'll be competing in the World Finals. Uh, there'll be approximately 820 teams from. I believe it's 25 different countries will be out there. So we'll be competing against teams like Poland and China, Mexico. 
So why is it that the Kennebunk Wells area seems to be doing so well in these these competitions for the state? <laughs> uh, so I know in Kennebunk, um, I think what, I, what I've seen over the last five years is, is really a, a rapid increase in, in interest in, in the first LEGO program. Um, and I think that that interest by not just the students, but the parents and the rest of the community to support it, because it does take a lot of work to, to do these, these programs, um, really has helped with the, the success. Uh, the first year, five years ago that I did the program, I believe there were about 20 or 25 kids in the district that were in the program. And this past year, there were over 100. So it's really grown uh, dramatically. And uh, just it takes a lot of support to, to, to do that. And uh, the community has really gotten behind it, as well as the school district. So. And how about Wells? Yeah, Wells has had a long tradition with Odyssey of the Mind. Uh, including a couple of the board members for Odyssey of the Mind actually still reside in Wells and did the program with their kids, I don't want to date them, but 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, so we've had uh, some fairly good success in Wells over the last 10 years. I think when I was growing up, um, science wasn't as... Well, I'll use the word sexy. Let's just put that out there. It wasn't as appealing that we didn't have as many kids. I mean, we had a math team. We had a literary magazine. But there wasn't the same sort of interest in science and technology. Why has that changed? Uh, I, I know one reason is, is the technology itself makes it more accessible. So um, the, the Lego robotics kits, for example, are completely different from any Legos I ever played with growing up. Um, and the technology that's that's a part of those is um, pretty amazing, and to and to make it accessible and um, usable by by you know students that are eight to fourteen year olds, um, without that it would be hard to get them as interested. So. And I believe a lot of the careers these days are actually tied into the sciences and technology, especially with the evolution of the computers and the chips. I think there's just that need where kids have to have that going into a lot of the careers these days. So why does Lego care about robotics? Why the connection between those two things? Uh, so I think, it, so the robotics competition came out of the first organization, which um, was founded by Dean Kamen. He's a innovator, invented things like the Segway and, and several other medical devices, actually. And um, I'm not sure of the history, but I, I think he partnered with Lego because, again, it, it makes it accessible. It helps make the technology accessible uh, to, to kids that may have already been used to playing with Legos. Um, and Lego itself has always been, you know, a, a toy that's uh, geared towards creativity and, and getting a, a children to, to design and invent on their own. Uh, the boxes come with instructions, but you don't have to follow them to in order to play with the toy. So. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't know how many times I would step on Legos as they were like scattered across the floor. The children <laughs> didn't spend all that much time making them. They, I think the first time was the time that they made them into right. what they were supposed to make them into. And then after that, it was all, they just did their own thing, right. which was actually pretty great. Yeah, and it, it fits well with the, the kind of the mission of FIRST and the, and the whole trying to get kids involved and in the problem solving and, and creativity and technology. So. And how about Odyssey of the Mind? How did that come to be? 
Honestly, the mine was started uh, back in 1978, I believe, by a professor, uh, Nicholas, down in New Jersey, and he had actually given his uh, college course kids a problem to try to solve, which was to build a device that would walk across water without falling into the water. And from there, he started the uh, organization, and it's been going on since then. Each of you have children. Um, Jim, you have two sons, and Keith, you have two daughters. How has your interest in science trickled down? I guess, Keith, you said your daughter is at Brown now. Correct. My daughter went through the Odyssey of the Mind program, started in fifth grade, and uh, went through eighth grade. Uh, she went out to world finals and actually won world finals in eighth grade and then decided with her uh, high school c workload she wanted to not do the program as a participant anymore but actually was on the board of directors for Odyssey of the Mind as a student representative and helped out in all the events and the tournaments um, all through high school. And how about your other daughter? Uh, she started in second grade. This is her um, fifth year, and this will be her fourth year going out to World Finals. What does your wife think about all this? Um, when it's not the season, it's okay. During the season, it, it is a lot of time uh, trying to coordinate, especially the kids have such busy schedules these days. Uh, kids on my team do track, baseball, football, uh, dance, math club. So there's a lot of things that you're trying to juggle and make it so that all seven kids can meet at the same time. And how about you? What do your What does your family think of this whole situation? Uh, so it is. It's not just from for my wife or my family. It's a big time commitment, as Keith said. It's. Uh, I know for us, we practice five or six hours a week, uh, pretty much September through April, and uh, that's as much or more of a commitment than a lot of other activities or sports. So um, it's. It's a busy time for sure, and uh, it uh, makes you appreciate the times when you're not busy <laughs> uh, doing those activities. So. And how do your sons experience science? Uh, so they're both very interested in it. They they're they're both. I, I appreciate that they're both very well round well rounded. Um, my older son, unfortunately, when we moved to Maine, the the robotics program hadn't really gotten up to steam yet, so or up to speed yet, so. Um, he uh, he wasn't able to participate at the same level as my younger son, um, but they both enjoy science and are very curious by nature, so it fits well with them. So. The way you're describing it, it, it sounds like a sport. It sounds like you're right. You're practicing even more than your average, say, swim team, and the season is probably longer than your average swim season, which as a swim parent, I know, that's, that's a long season. Mm -hmm. So how do you keep your interest and energy up, and especially where you both have a full to have full time jobs at Corning. Uh, for me, uh, keeping the energy up is when you see the rewards of what the kids come out with. It. Um, I've had parents come up to me afterwards and say that from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, they've seen such a change in their child whether it be the interaction with other kids or their desire to go off and learn something. So it's, it's really about where the kids grow and what you're doing for the kids and not just telling them how to learn it, but watching as they learn how to learn. And that's what they're gonna need when, as they grow up and go to college.
And how about you, Jim? Yeah, I think as Keith mentioned, the rewards uh, to me really make it a an, an energy gain, right? It's it's not something that drains the energy. It really, it's easy to keep the energy up because seeing seeing them work through problems, seeing light bulbs go off, or seeing them have fun working together. Uh, these kids aren't always friends before they get on a on a team, and and new friendships form. So all those types of things really just fuel the energy and, uh, and make it easy to, to keep going. So. What does Corning think of the work that you're doing in these schools? Uh, so Corning has been great. They've been a great supporter, both in allowing Keith and I, or at least I know from my standpoint, uh, allowing us to, to take the time to, to do it, because it, it, it is uh, some time commitment and, uh, you know, we can't wait necessarily till the end of the workday. Sometimes it cuts into the workday even to, to do the work. Um, so from a time perspective and understanding that, you know, we have other things to do, they've been great. But also financially, uh, Corning and the Corning Foundation has made several donations uh, to the robotics program, to our team in particular. Obviously, it costs a lot of money to, to transport 14 or 15 people halfway across the country and uh, they've really helped make all that, that possible. So. Yeah, both Corn and Corporation and the plant have been very good uh, for my experience and honesty of the mind. A combination of A, giving me the time and allowing me the time to go off and do the teaching that I need to do and have the meetings during the week. Uh, but they've also been very supportive with shipping props out, uh, to whether it be Iowa or Michigan State, and also for the financial donations to help us defray the cost of going out to the competition. Do you feel this type of support from a from a corporation or a company? Do you feel like this is unusual? This sort of interaction and support with the school system. Um, I I I don't know how unusual it is, but um, I I think it's something that more and more companies are are looking at um, and are doing, both from a standpoint of kind of being good members of their community. Um, but also from a somewhat selfish standpoint of Corning is a technology company. So uh, Corning kind of has an interest in, in fueling the, the growth and the development of the next generation of technology people. So, Jim, how can people find out about the first Lego robotics program? Uh, so on the web, you can, you can go to first, usfirst.org. Uh, there's also a main robotics organization uh, that's uh, run out of Augusta, I believe. Um, they do a lot with LEGO Robotics. They coordinate the state uh, and regional tournaments in Maine. And they also offer things like summer camps uh, with LEGO Robotics. And Keith, how can people find out about Odyssey of the Mind? Yeah, there's a couple of different things. In the state of Maine, there's actually a Maine Odyssey of the Mind website. It's meodysseyofthemind.com. And for the national organization, it's odysseyofthemind.com. Well, I appreciate all the work that you're doing in your communities. I think that it's um, it really makes me feel happy that you've dedicated so much time and energy to helping kids get excited about science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And um, I hope that people take the time to learn more about these programs, whether just in a general sense or for their own children. We've been speaking with Jim Eichmann, who is the engineering manager at the Corning Incorporated Life Sciences Plant in Kennebunk, and also who works with the first Lego robotics program in his town, Kennebunk. We've also been speaking with Keith Borkowski, who is the plant controller at the Corning Incorporated Life Sciences Plant. 
Keith is also a coach with the Odyssey of the Mind team in Wells. I appreciate all the work you're doing in the community, and I also appreciate, um, I think, specifically bringing Heidi Kern's daughter out there two years in a row. Jim, I know she's gotten a lot out of it, and I hope many more good things will come out of Odyssey of the Mind and also the first Lego robotics program in your area. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 256, Engaging in Education. Our guests have included Jim Eichmann, Keith Borkowski, and Talia Edlin. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Engaging in Education show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Main Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's a preview of next week's interview with Lucas St. Clair. Having spent um, quite a bit of time in northern Maine and driving back and forth to northern Maine and um, having been to Millinocket and Katahdin, it takes a while to get there. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a hike. Yeah. I mean, I, I went there yesterday morning and I spent the whole day on the East Branch, the Penobscot. I drove the Loop Road in the proposed park, did a small hike, and then drove home and I was back by 8.30. So you so, don't think that being that far north should be any sort of impediment? No, I mean, it, national parks by nature are in rural places, um, but it's, you know, to, to drive to Acadia from here takes the same amount of time that it would dri- take to drive to the proposed park. And when you think about where we are situated in the country, there are 90 million people within a day's drive of the Katahdin region. So that's a quarter of the population of the United States. And then you think about where people come into the United States from Europe, especially, you know, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., those are points. And so to have national parks very close to those areas, um, I think, would really draw people to northern Maine. We, the, the Park Service gets about 20 million visitors a year from, from Europe alone. And so that's, if they fly to the East Coast, they would very likely come to, to northern Maine. And when you look at the a map of where national parks are, there's Acadia, and there isn't another one until the Shenandoahs. So all the way down in Virginia, and in this very dense part of the United States. So while it feels like a long day drive to, to shoot up there for the day, um, if someone's on vacation, if family's on vacation, they decide to go to Acadia, they're, they're likely to go to Bangor, then an hour to Acadia, and then an hour to the North Woods. Seems like a trip. You know, that's, so that's going to keep people in Maine longer, in Penobscot County longer. So I, I think that people will certainly go. 
it's, it seems like there's there's an actual process that um, I guess communities go through when you're proposing a national park and um, and getting to the place where the community buys in. But there's also a process that you have to go through that's very logistical. Yeah, it has to do with the federal government. Describe that for me and sure. what that's been like for you. So there are two ways to create units of the National Park Service, and there are, I think, almost 30 different units of the Park Service. There's the national parks, but there's national seashores, there's national monuments, there are national um, historic parks, battlefields, um, reserves, preserves, like, and they all have various different areas that they that they protect. Um, there's two ways to create those those units. One, the president can do it or the Congress can do it. So for a long time, we worked on a bill, that a piece of legislation that would be introduced by our congressional delegation and passed through Congress. And we worked on that for several years. We drafted a, drafted a piece of legislation. We worked with our congressional delegation. And we worked with people in the Katahdin region to say, are, are we addressing your needs within this piece of legislation? And as we addressed more and more of the concerns and the needs, more and more support grew, and our congressional delegation became more interested and intrigued by the idea. In the end, we wanted to do something to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service, which is here this year, 2016. So we were putting pressure on our delegation saying, you know, 2016 is the year. So we really want to want to have the introdu- introduction of legislation then. And they they weren't ready. They weren't they weren't willing. So, you know, we we worked on that last fall in the fall of 2015 with them and when we got signals that they weren't going to introduce the legislation we started to to have conversations with the white house and said okay well if, if we can't do it this way we'll go we'll go to the to the president and see if he will do it and in order to have the president do it that he can use the 1906 antiquities act which creates a national monument and it can be administered by the park service and so that's what our goal is now and about half of the national parks that were created were initially created as a national monument. So Acadia was done. Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson, in 1916, used the Antiquities Act to create Acadia, or it was called Sir Lamont Monument, National Monument. The Grand Canyon, Zion, the Olympic Mountains, um, all of the big parks in Alaska, they're all created by um, being a monument first. And oftentimes then it's followed up with a piece of legislation that creates the national park. So that's the path that we're on now, hoping that the president will use the 1906 Antiquities Act to create a national monument. We will transfer the land that we own to the National Park Service, and we'll also provide a $40 million endowment for operations and maintenance of the park. You oftentimes hear about a backlog of maintenance and the parks can't pay for themselves. And it's a challenge that um, we, we saw that needed to be addressed. And so the foundation will donate that $40 million to take care of the operations and maintenance and um so it'll essentially pay for itself so we we you know we are hoping that um support continues to grow senator king has um had a public meeting and almost 1300 people came to it there was about 12 or about 1100 people in support of it it was it was a great showing of support Uh, congressman poliquin had a congressional field hearing in east millinocket about 60 people spoke at that, and 47 of them were in support, including elected officials in the local towns. So both of the both King and 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 Congressman Poliquin have heard that there is support, more support than opposition in the region, 
And so they're sort of moving into a more comfortable space. Um, but in the end, it, it will be the president's decision. And um, we're, we're getting signals from people that work for him that this is that it's positive and, and we're moving in the right direction, but we don't know anything definitively yet. Is there a bit of a time crunch, given that he's an outgoing president? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we have a new president, there will be a new Secretary of Interior and a new Director of the Park Service and all the people at the Council for Environmental Quality. Thank you for listening to Love, Maine Radio. We hope you can join us for next week's program.